This is Street Signals, a weekly conversation about markets and macro brought to you by State Street Global Markets. I'm your host, Tim Graff, head of macro strategy for EMEA at State Street, based in London. Of the known unknowns that can affect the outlook for everything from geopolitics to the investment landscape this year, the U.S. elections in November loom the largest and perhaps the most confusing. Joe Biden is presiding over one of the healthiest economic recoveries in the post-war era, yet he is an historically unpopular candidate. Donald Trump seems to have an advantage in early polling, but also faces a wave of potential felony convictions later this year. The differences for foreign and domestic policy, depending on who the winner is, look pretty stark. And that's actually as far as I want to take this introduction because someone far better versed in the dynamics of this cycle and polling around it is joining us this week to give a state of play and his outlook. Elliot Hentov is head of macro policy research and part of the global macro research team at State Street Global Advisors, and he's here to talk with me about all of this this week. Elliot, as always, it's great to speak to you. Hi, Tim. Great to see you. Cool. So there are so many things we need to cover. I think it makes sense to start with the backdrop against which this election is taking place, especially the macroeconomic story. You guys have published and you specifically have published your election preview focusing on that. And I want to lead with that. So let's start there. As you mentioned in your piece, Biden is showing significant unpopularity in polling despite the state of the economy. Can you walk us through where we are and why this is? I think before I do, I I just want to share my hope for the next half hour in this talk, which is that I hope all listeners walk away from this podcast with a little bit less attention to the news cycle and really a focus on fundamentals. And if you look at some of the data that I look at on my dashboard, the world just looks a little bit different. So I hope I'm able to convey some of that uh, during this session. And where, where I would start is take a lot of the news over the past few weeks and months uh, with a grain of salt. So you just asked, the economy is doing objectively well. So on our dashboard, in terms of macro indicators, it it looks like a relatively good environment for an incumbent to be running. Uh, On most, on the five indicators that we track that have the the best correlation history with the outcome, uh, they're all in solidly green territory. Most of them are measured in real terms which means that they are actually getting better over time, or they really improved in 2023, but they're continuing to gain as inflation stays contained and earnings, particularly earnings and income growth, continue to be in positive territory. The question really is, why does that not being reflected in polling, and particularly polling of the current incumbent. And there's a lot of theories out there, and I don't, I don't want to spend time on debunking most of them. I think the one that I come down to is simply that there is quite a, a lagged effect. In 2022, a lot of these indicators looked very poor. That is just the harsh reality. In real terms, the economy was not doing well just 15, 18 months ago. And that lag is similar to like long and variable lags in monetary policy. I think there's long and variable lags in terms of how people actually perceive uh, the economy and so forth. We do see that the polling detached from Joe Biden is improving, with, it, with whether it's consumer confidence about personal situation, personal expectations of finance, overall state of the economy. We see 
polling is starting to pick up, and I would expect a, a, that to continue ahead of the election. So ultimately, do you think this is, you know, in the words of James Carville, all about the economy, stupid, things will mean revert and that will stand him in good stead? Or, or is there any case, given things like polarization, which I think we'll talk a little bit more about in, in a moment, but is there a case that it might be a bit stickier this time? I'll, I'll just give you the hard facts, which are that the macroeconomic backdrop has mattered has been less and less predictive of an outcome over the last decades in the US as polarization has taken hold. It still correlates fairly well, but it doesn't correlate. I would say if this was 2004, I'd say it's a slam dunk. There's no question about the election. Uh, but the correlation has weakened quite a bit over time because as you point out with polarization, uh, there's other drivers, there's large captive constituencies that are cannot be swayed either way. Uh, and by the way, you see that also in the polling, just in the economic data. I mean, you and your team have gone through this quite a lot, which is that Republican and Democratic voters' responses differ in consumer confidence surveys and so forth consistently now based on who's in power. And that gap between kind of the, the, the what independents are thinking and the respective partisans is growing um, from term to term ever, ever greater. And what about sort of on a state-by-state -state basis? I mean, there, there's always going to be five, six, maybe seven states that really do determine the election. Can you talk a little bit about the work you've done in particularly the macro data in those big swing states that really are going to help us determine the outcome? What are the politics on the ground as well? And, and where do you see them sitting on a more granular level versus the national polling? Let's take it step by step. We'll start with the swing states, but I do want to bring in some other data just to reflect on the primary season that we had before. But sticking to the swing states, we have a variety of conventional macro data. So basically the same macro indicators that we think are relevant or have been relevant at a national level, we look at them, we try to replicate them in the six key swing states that matter. We also particularly try to measure in these states, how are they vis-a-vis -vis the national average? Mm. Um, because that actually, in many ways, the gap vis-a-vis -vis the national or the median voter nationally uh, tells us a little bit more than just what's going on in the state. And finally, uh, we've from election to election, we've tried to identify one or two indicators that we think that, that are just resonate more strongly. So if you think about 2016, we we, we took a, a close look at um, manufacturing jobs, for instance, specifically manufacturing jobs. And that showed us on those metrics that the Midwest looked highly vulnerable for Hillary Clinton, uh, just because they had such an attrition, even over the preceding three, four years in manufacturing jobs. Uh, in 2020, we looked at COVID death rates in individual sink states because there too, we thought in 2020, that would have a particular resonance and, and set, uh, stand apart. And that, by the way, that, that looked quite, in the swing states, looked quite poor for Donald Trump in 2020. Hmm. And so we've tried to do the same thing this year. And again, I'm, I'm, we've zoomed in on kind of the inflation dynamics more than anything else. We're weighing them a little bit stronger. And we come out, I know that's what everybody wants to know, we come out <laughs> uh, on the swing six states, two being fairly firmly in Trump's corner, two being fairly firmly in Biden's corner and two being really genuinely toss-up, uh, which tells you a lot about that we think this election is very much, very much still up for grabs. And I would not lend a lot of credence 
to the general polling, which has incredibly poor predictive power 10 months or nine months out from the election. I was going to ask about the state of polling. Should we just ignore everything until a certain date? Is there a point at which you see this improving? And, and, and is it a more an issue of higher frequency polling that starts to get things more interested? Yeah, so I, I genuinely do not look at any election polls, or I don't weigh them in any serious manner until really the conventions, basically the actual peak election season. Yeah. Um, and th- th- before then, they're, they're, they're just, they just do not have high statistical relevance. That's, but on the polling, so we talked about macro data, but we also do have a set of political data, uh, which I, I think people undervalue. And I would like to highlight that uh, briefly, which is that even if you don't like the polls, we have the polls versus outcomes. And that actually tells us quite a bit. And so we have it for 2022 and 2023, so kind of 2022, the midterms and the uh, individual off-year elections last year. We've had it for the Republican primary season this year. And there we actually glean quite a bit. And what we glean there is a consistent outperformance of the Democrats in elections vis-a-vis Republicans and a mm-hmm. consistent underperformance in Trump candidates vis-a-vis the polling and Trump himself vis-a-vis the polling. I want to remind listeners that in the three big primaries this year so far, the gap of his victory was 7% smaller on average each time versus the polling. Mm. So the polls are overstating his strength. They're understating the Democrats. And that's quite unusual, especially 2022. We had an all-time high gap between a presidential approval rating and the congressional election in the midterm. All-time high, meaning that voters really didn't like not happy with the president, but when they came to the booth, the voters that showed up, a lot of them held their nose, and there were other issues driving voters to close that gap. And so you take that political data into the mix with the polling, which currently gives Trump an edge, and it takes us, I have to balance that out, and it takes us back to kind of a 50-50 outlook. Well, let's talk then about the candidates themselves. Kind of. I was going to start with Biden, but because you've just finished talking about Trump, I think I'm going to, we're going to start with Trump. And we're recording this just on the day after we got results from South Carolina, where Trump won. But as you say, perhaps didn't win in maybe as convincing fashion as polls might have indicated. But nevertheless, is looking the presumptive nominee. We're recording this again a week before Super Tuesday, when the delegate count will probably become a foregone conclusion. Is there anything at this point? Beyond legal issues, we'll we'll come back to that in a moment. Is there anything standing in the way of his winning the nomination? Is there any chance that Nikki Haley stays in this race beyond Super Tuesday and perhaps maybe starts to build a little bit more of a ground 12 support? There is no conceivable scenario that's not an exogenous event yeah. where Donald Trump leaves, does not get the nomination. By the way, that, that's been our view a month ago, three months ago, eight months ago. Uh, that hasn't changed. I do want to throw in some weird data here, which is I've also looked at actuarial tables of mortality and illness, (laughs) um, because this applies to both candidates. For Donald Trump's age, mortality this year is a 5% actuarial rate. For Joe Biden's, it's 7.5%. If you add in incapacitation or unfitness, you're reaching well above double digits for Joe Biden and a little bit less uh, for Donald Trump. So there you have already one yeah, it's not a base case scenario, but it's not a complete outlier scenario of no. how he could exit. And you mentioned, obviously, the legal issues to which I will just flag 
there is a small set of Republican primary voters who have said they will not vote for him if he's actually convicted. Yeah. If they are true to their word, that would be probably enough to, to swing the vote right there. How thorny are these realistically in terms of will there be a convicted felon running for office on election day? He's fueled on grievance and really thrives on that. And the indictments thus far have not had really any effect other than some of the response that you just noted. But in a, in a context of whether it's polling or an election outcome, do you think this weighs him down or do you think this is just more fire for the base? Unless swing voters, independents side with the defendant and really believe that the U.S. judiciary is through and through politicized, mm. It's it's a net negative, and we by the way we can measure this too. We can see that we see it in fundraising. He's not doing as well as he was doing in the previous four year cycle. He's not doing as well as Joe Biden today. And not only is he not fundraising as much, a high share of fundraising is going towards legal costs. Mm. That that simply cannot be positive. Now he's he's an absolute master at converting free media into airtime. Uh, but nonetheless, that is a, it's a net negative. And it is a threat because I said there's a small share of Republican voters who would probably sit out the election if he does get convicted. Right. Well, let's think about Biden then. And I suspect given the discussion we've had thus far, this is somewhat of a redundant question in that we've talked about the polling for Biden potentially improving as things go on or not being able to really put much faith in the polling we've seen thus far. And and you've brought up the age issues as well for both candidates. And that does seem to be the main thing, at least being publicly discussed in derailing Biden's candidacy. If poor polling persists, say through the convention season or up to the convention, I guess, is the opportune time when a change might be possible or realistic. Is there any chance that he steps aside? Or I think there's only one thing that removes him from the candidate and that's an actual health problem or his own individual choice that he he's no longer fit to run at current state i think it's again it's an outlier scenario it's not unthinkable the rules of the game do matter a little bit because the timing of let's say there were such a resignation the timing of the resignation does matter in terms of when the deciding power for the replacement moves to the Democratic National Committee. Uh, so during, obviously during the primary season, it would not. It would still reside with the delegates yeah. and voters at that stage. And then only past once the primary season's over, it's the Democratic National Com Committee who would have the choice. But if it would happen into the actual election campaign, there is actually no choice. It's then the VP that naturally steps up. Yeah. And so these theories around, you know, late change of horses in the in the race and that's all very exciting makes for great television and netflix stories it's quite unrealistic to be honest and presumably other than kamala harris there's probably not much of a bench there to really rely on in terms of alternative candidates either there's actually the bench isn't that bad on the democratic side it's just that it's unthinkable that the democratic party would permit a candidate other than kamala harris to take that role is there any credible third party candidate who can make it to election day and get substantial enough traction going into that who could siphon votes from from either of those candidates in swing states? 
I think the important thing here to remember is, and this is, I'm looking at arcane balloting rules, trying to understand which candidate has actually a chance to land on the ballot in all the key states. Mm. Uh, the reality is, it's a path for a third party victory is is so remote. I'm not giving it any thought. Yeah, yeah. But a path for a third party to actually be the determining factor in the election outcome, I'm giving a lot of credence. Yeah. And it really does matter who is on the ballot where. And in that regard, we have we virtually have certain confirmation that the Green Party candidate will be on the ballot in all the states. That's because the Green Party is already an entrenched institution. That is a headwind for the current president. And then we have two other significant third-party candidates. One is a far-left candidate, Cornell West. Uh, currently, I'm just reporting on the balloting. It's not clear whether he will manage to actually get on the ballot in time in several of the states. He's certainly not in all. Uh, and even for RF Kennedy Jr., it looks like there are obstacles to his successful registration and placement on the ballot across the nation. Uh, but again, what matters is, will these candidates be on the ballot in those six swing states? And if if so, then the arithmetic of the outcome can be very much changed. So that's mm. very much a variable to keep on watching. I wanted to ask about the institutional concerns with this election. We, of course, have as the basis for concern the events of January 6, 2021. Do we have any concerns about this being a smooth election or not? How big of a factor do you think the polarization we see in the current climate and the institutional disdain, especially factoring into this being an election that, that carries with it more volatility than usual? Yeah, well, Tim, I don't know if you re recall in 2020, uh, about a year before I had forecast a disputed election. Hmm. I thought that the challenger would win narrowly and it would be disputed by the incumbent uh, and there'd be some political violence. I felt I was wrong mid-November. <laughs> the, the election outcome was correct, but there hadn't been political violence. Uh, but by early January, that had actually arrived. Uh, I'm much less worried about the election process in 2024. That is because a lot of the less sincere actors that would like to be have an active institutional role in the supervision of elections, uh, they haven't. They're not present. They've been removed. Uh, a lot of them ran for office in 22, did not succeed. So in all the, in all the swing states, basically you have a very credible, legitimate authorities governing uh, the election process, and a lot of the legislative proposals in some of the states, like in Arizona and elsewhere, where there had been suggestions that the state legislature receive the authority to overrule the election outcome. Uh, those have been dismissed. So I'm not worried about the election process uh, mm. this year. I do think that for future election cycles, that worry will come back in a big way. And this, you know, we just had the South Carolina primary. Exit polling showed that two thirds of Republican primary voters did not believe the 2020 election was legitimate. Uh, so that gives me quite some discomfort about future election cycles. Well, let's think about the outcomes now. And we've discussed the presidential election at length. And I think the, the message is so far, it's a toss up. Uh, two states in particular seem very divided in your swing state analysis, and, and it makes it very difficult to call an outcome. But of course, this isn't just a presidential election cycle. We have Senate elections, the House turns over every couple of years. 
What is your thinking on the kind of state of play for the political makeup of both the legislative and the executive branch? Again, I'm just going to, I don't want to overload the listeners, but I'm trying to bring some data points in context here. Houses of chambers do seem to change hands every so often. That is true in recent history. That was not the case until the 21st century. Uh, You actually had a change in one of the chambers of Congress was a fairly rare event. Mm. Um, it's now become so that you have some over the last 20 years, except for 2012, every two years, some body changed hands in an election cycle at a federal level. And that's that's ex- actually the last 10 years is the first time ever in the 230 plus years history of the US that every two years you had basically some federal body change party control. And so, yes, that speaks to a country that is highly volatile. And that's a function of polarization. Polarization really around very similarly sized blocks makes for a very volatile system. And I'm saying this all just to tell you that, yes, in 2024, it's going to happen again. As a matter of fact, we could get a trifecta this year, which is rare, where everything changes hands. And that's, uh, in my mind, the Senate is virtually guaranteed to be Republican. That's not a big secret. The House is clearly favored to be Democratic. And the presidency, as you heard from me, is currently a 50-50. Now, how can it be that the question really should be, okay, the Senate is fine. We all understand these are kind of, it's a regional vote, so to speak. You can have these dislocations. Obviously, right this year, there's way more open Democratic seats, particularly held by red-leaning states. Uh, So the Senate will be Republican. But how can the House turn Democratic and the presidency become Republican at the same time? Something that in the past rarely happened, that both would flip in the opposite direction. And the reason it's the case is that while we know the swing states, you know, it's the Midwest, Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, those are the swing states that by a small number of voters will decide the outcome. The redistricting effects post-2020 actually means that there's many more kind of swing districts in solidly red or blue states. And so therefore, actually, if you look at the the actual districts that are up for grabs, you basically have many more Republicans in Biden districts or districts that were won by Biden up for re-election in 2024 than the other way around. So it's a Republican defense. And I would actually say that given the election outcomes of 2022 and 2023, the odds clearly favor the Democrats for the House. Not by as much as the Republicans for the Senate, but let's say 60-65% chance the House goes Democratic. Senate is more like a 90% chance it'll go Republican. And the presidency will keep us basically captivated for most of this year. (laughs) Before we get to the election, though, I wanted to think about policy and We'll start with monetary policy. And the, the Fed, of course, is not a political actor. They say they aren't political actors. I, I, you know, I, I think most reasonable people would believe they are politically independent from this process. At this point in the cycle, they're, of course, talking about the potential to ease policy at some point later this year. Does the prospect of an election in November make them potentially more proactive, if only to avoid getting sucked into appearing to be less than independent the closer you get to the election? I don't think it affects the timing as much as if the data is all on the cusp, the election is probably the deciding 
straw that pushes it into a dovish direction, which mm. is better safe than than sorry. As long as equity markets are doing well and the economy is humming along, the risks are to the downside from a institutional perspective of the Fed that they get blamed for not having acted in time. The downside risk the other way is asymmetric, i.e. if there is a little bit more of an inflationary revival, it would come after the election and the blame would not be as proportionate as the other way around. Uh, so that's the first point. The second point I would mention that this is not a normal election and the Fed, as technocratic as they are, they are also citizens and voters and their institution and the independence of the Fed is also on the ballot. The Trump campaign has been very clear. It wants to get all arms of government under democratic control, i.e. under the authority of the elected officials. And they have a plan for a variety of bodies that are relatively independent regulatory institutions, and that also includes the Fed, to exert closer executive control of these bodies. And that also applies to the Federal Reserve. And I presume that a lot of the Federal Reserve are quite nervous about what that would look like in practice, whether it just means they would Trump would uh, replace the chairman or would nominate the loyalists to the board, or whether there would be an attempt to change the operational and staffing patterns within the Fed to do so, whatever it may be, I do think that the Fed as an institution is quite worried about that. Thinking ahead then to the election outcomes that you've outlined where it is Trump with one House of Congress, particularly that scenario where it is still divided government, how realistic of a target would that be for them? How, how worried should we be about institutional independence in that scenario? Yeah, that scenario is interesting because, as you know, for a lot of the political appointments, also including to the Fed, the House does not play a role, but the Senate does yeah. uh, in the Senate confirmation. And so in the scenario where Trump is president, but the House is obstructionist Democrats in his view, fiscal legislation cannot be passed with anything meaningful. All the other legislative avenues are closed off, and that leaves him really just with two areas. One is kind of executive action domestically, particularly around the federal government and foreign policy. And so I would assume in that outcome, you basically get even more dramatic policy swings on kind of the regulatory front, domestic institutions, foreign policy, than in the scenario where the Republicans win the House and a lot of attention goes down to kind of legislation as well, particularly around fiscal tax and spending and so forth. Mm. Uh, so that actually could, back to your institutional risk, could actually exacerbate the institutional risks at play versus a Republican sweep. We haven't talked about foreign policy too much. Thinking about it through that lens then, and particularly the U.S. alliance system, which has gotten a lot of discussion of late given some of Trump's campaign rhetoric, in that scenario, in any scenario, if he's elected president, whether it's, you know, the executive still has quite a degree of power in foreign policy, as you've mentioned, how credible are those threats to NATO, other alliances? They're very credible. You can see already, I would probably classify the reaction in Europe as alarm or panic. Over the past few weeks, you had the NATO secretary general visit DC a month ago, and he gave a talk at the Heritage Foundation, 
which is a mm. right-wing think tank. That by itself is maybe not something unusual, but it was the first time that has ever happened. So I think that gives you an insight into how much uh, European leaders are aware of the threat. What I would say from a market's point of view is clearly the threat of a weakening or dismantling or an undermining of NATO is very credible. It's going to not only boost defense expenditure in Europe, it's also going to have to widen risk premia among those countries that look vulnerable in, in that new security architecture. And as a result, I expect, not yet, but later this year, you should start to see some markets purely from that U.S. alliance prism start to track Trump's polling with regard to November, uh, because I do think it's very credible and it's it's actually going to be a market theme as as we get closer to the election date. As we get closer, actually, one of the questions going back to the campaign, but really both the campaign and the post-election period, no matter who wins, really, you, of course, have hostile state actors and agents of influence. And there are always surely going to be attempts to influence popular sentiment from them. Do you have any thoughts about how that unfolds at all stages of this process, whether it's prior to the election or after the election, particularly with regards to alliance systems and the conflicts in Ukraine and um, the ongoing turmoil in the Middle East as well? I'm quite anxious about that because election years always allow for the foreign policy crisis to arise. No more so than this year. I really do think that the circumstances are very high. They certainly diminish after the election historically, and it would, okay. for good for good reason. You know, it's it's not smart for foreign actors to necessarily test the new administration or to use the interlude period to see what the U.S. response would be, because typically a new administration enjoys an electoral mandate, and therefore you you kind of do not want to test the resolve. But in an election year, you definitely do, and this is the opportunity set for a lot of actors around the world to push the boundaries to reestablish kind of their position to gain whatever it is, territory, bargaining power, money, the opportunity set is big. And so therefore, I would expect a continued rolling series of crises around the world that are exacerbated by the fact that all of them play into the US election dynamic. And mind you, foreign actors, we spoke about the Europeans, but foreign actors all around the globe have a preference one way or the other. And so therefore, they, in an election year, they are like the US voter. They have a little bit of influence. And so therefore, the incentive to actually play for that influence and to say, okay, here, it only comes every four or maybe every eight years where I really have a shot at shaping the outcome that is so dramatic and meaningful, I might as well put my chips down on the table this year. And that usually translates into some type of event and risk or crisis. Do you have a feel for where that risk might be highest or where the theater of that taking place might be? Beyond the obvious, the crisis hurts that we all know about, the ongoing wars in, in Ukraine and the Middle East, I think that those are obvious. I think the ones that make me a little bit more nervous are precisely those that I just described, where you kind of have a stalemate situation but you have a little bit of a rogue actor looking to maybe break the status quo or move the status quo in their favor. So the Korean Peninsula would be a classic one. We could theoretically, although I'm 
less concerned about it, the Taiwan Straits, uh, with a new Taiwanese president and legislature there as well, uh, you, you could get some type of issue there. I'm worried about areas like South America, the Venezuela, Guyana issue, or other parts of the world, where again, it's meaningful from a market's perspective only if it has a transmission mechanism into financial markets, either via commodity channel or capital flows. Uh, but I think there's a number of those that I would be worried about. Well, you've brought up Taiwan, and I wanted to ask about one of Trump's main campaign talking points has been this putting tariffs, extreme tariffs on China, kind of continuing the work that he started in his first administration. This is another area where the executive branch can wield some power, unchecked power. How credible a threat do you find that, particularly given the economy is, is, is doing relatively well? He'll, if he's elected again, inherit most likely a decent economy. How willing would he be to really disrupt that? I think we should uh, take campaigns generally, and Trump in particular, very much by their word. I think they lay out plans, and as best as they are able to, they try to implement them. So I, I, I take it very seriously. I think it's very credible. As you point out, there's no mechanical reason why that could not happen. The executive has, through Section 301 and some other tools, the levers to impose tariffs of indiscriminate size, so to speak. And therefore, I think this is very much possible. It may not end up with the 60%, but I would expect the wielding of the tariff threat to start from day one. And then the imposition of some form of tariffs on China and others, by the way, uh, throughout the administration. And we focused a lot on Trump in this podcast. And I suppose that's to be expected, A, given who he is, and B, given he's the challenger. Status quo is usually not too exciting to talk about. But I, I did want to finish with the investment implications. You mentioned the higher risk premia perhaps needing to be attached to Europe, the, the higher defense spending by Europeans. Uh, in light of some of the commentary Trump has had about weakening the existing alliance framework. And I mean, just as backdrop, the institutional investors we track are really not committing to much of anything other than maybe tech and communication services, as they have done for, for years now. There's also a strong weight to cash, though, and increasing allocations to things like U.S. Treasury. So very much a taking risk on one hand, but very much interested in safe havens on the other. Is there a base case investment outlook that you're holding or that you're recommending going into the election, no matter what the outcome you think might be? The short-term view is that we know that election years typically follow certain seasonal patterns based on the uncertainty around the election. That should not be present in Q1. It should probably show itself by late Q2. Um, there's a busy uncertainty premium in risk assets uh, applied because you know the markets are trying to figure out what what will the policy shifts look like and then as you get closer to election day typically before election day markets close that uncertainty gap you basically get risk assets rallying into the election and then beyond once you have clarity i do think that will be very much the seasonal pattern this year perhaps with the uncertainty premium showing up earlier because we basically we have no primary season, and uh, perhaps being larger because, as for some parts of the market, the gap between the two candidates is is quite substantial. Now, with regards to the allocation, 
typical big way to play the U.S. election has been among U.S. equity sectors because they've been very much kind of exposed to fiscal plans and regulatory approaches. That's going to be the dispersion that we've seen in recent years that had been growing between the top and worst performing sectors around the election. We think that dispersion will actually be a little bit narrower this year than in prior cycles. The dispersion where we've talked about it outside of the U.S., so non-U.S. markets, particularly U.S. allies, where I think the market will struggle to think, well, which U.S. ally is really exposed on the security or trade front as a result of the Trump administration, and which one is actually quite immune. There, we think there should be some differential dispersion, very much kind of tracking Trump's polling uh, later or over the summer as a result. And and finally, one thing a Trump victory is virtually certain to engender, which is a continued U.S. dollar strength and continued higher for longer U.S. rates going into 2025. And that that alone, just a stronger dollar and higher U.S. rates, has implications across the asset allocation framework. Well, Elliot, we've got just over eight months to go. I can almost guarantee as long as you're willing, you can come back and we can talk about this more because the primary season may be all but over, but there still does seem to be so much to think about. And we've covered so much of it already on this podcast, but there's a lot more to come. So let's do it again in a few months time. I'll just thank you for your time this week. A pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of Street Signals from the research team at State Street Global Markets. This podcast and all of our research can be found at our web portal, Insights. There, you'll be able to find all of our latest thinking on macroeconomics and markets, where we leverage our deep experience in research on investor behavior, inflation, risk, and media sentiment, all of which goes into building an award-winning strategy product. If you're a client of State Street, hit us up there at globalmarkets.statestreet.com. We'll see you next time. This communication is provided by State Street Bank and Trust Company, hereafter referred to as State Street, and is for informational purposes only, and is not intended to suggest or recommend any transaction, investment, or investment strategy. It does not constitute investment research, nor does it purport to be comprehensive or intended to replace the exercise of an investor's own careful, independent review and judgment regarding any investment decision. This communication and the information herein does not constitute investment legal or tax advice, and is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities or any financial instrument, nor is it intended to constitute a binding contractual arrangement or commitment by State Street of any kind. The information provided does not take into account any particular investment objectives, strategies, investment horizon, or tax status. The views expressed herein are the views of State Street as of the date specified and are subject to change without notice based on market and other conditions. The information provided herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable at the time of publication. Nonetheless, we make no representations or assurances that the information is complete or accurate, and you should not place any reliance on said information. State Street hereby disclaims any warranty and all liability, whether arising in contract, tort, or otherwise, for any losses, liabilities, damages, expenses, or costs, either direct, indirect, consequential, special, or punitive, arising from or in connection with any use of this communication and or the information herein. State Street or its affiliates may from time to time as principal or agent for its own account or for those of its clients have positions in and or actively trade in financial instruments or other products identical to or economically related to those discussed in this communication. State Street may have a commercial relationship with issuers of financial instruments or other products discussed in this communication. This communication may contain information deemed to be forward-looking statements. These statements are based on assumptions, analyses, and expectations of State Street in light of its experience and perception of historical trends, current conditions, expected future developments, and other factors it believes appropriate under the circumstances. All information is subject to change without notice. This communication or any portion hereof may not be redistributed without the prior written consent of State Street. Past performance is no guarantee of future results.